Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Dr. Anthony Sasong, Chief Medical Director of Behavioral Health at Amwell, about how technology can help improve mental health services for children. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Dr. Anthony Sasong, Chief Medical Director of Behavioral Health at Amwell. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Jay. It's great to be here. Great to have you, and I was wondering if you could, uh, if we could start things off by uh, having you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do at Amwell. Oh, sure. Uh, so, as you said, I'm the Chief Medical Director for Behavioral Health, so I contribute to the ongoing development of behavioral health solutions at Amwell and provide clinical leadership and oversight of psychiatry and therapy across the organization. Uh, as a bit of background, I'm a physician, dual board certified in general psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry. I completed medical school at UCSF in the joint medical program, which is a partnership between UCSF School of Medicine and UC Berkeley School of Public Health. I completed residency and fellowship training at Massachusetts General Hospital and McLean Hospital through Harvard Medical School. And uh, in addition to my work at Amwell, I remain on faculty at Harvard Medical School and serve as an attending physician in the emergency department at Mass General. And tell me a little bit about Amwell. So Amwell was founded in 2006 by um, co-founders, co-CEOs, and, co- and physicians, Dr. Ito and Roy Schoenberg. Uh, it's a leading telehealth company, uh, technology and services company in the U.S. Uh, it serves more than 2,000 hospitals and health plans and uh, covers more than 80 million lives and over 36,000 employers. Uh, and, and today we're going to be talking about, um, you know, mental health services uh, for children. And I was wondering if you could just sort of describe the current situation, uh, you know, in the U.S. as far as uh, providing those kinds of services for uh, for pediatric patients. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, under the leadership of uh, uh, Dr. Ito and Roy Schoenberg, um, and through their recognition of the desperate need to, to improve access and quality of behavioral health care, uh, AMWELL has made a significant commitment to improving full-spectrum behavioral health delivery. Um, that's especially, uh, you know, true in in the the most recent years as the need has become more desperate after the pandemic. Um, you know, there there are a number of reasons for this. Obviously, the, this has been a problem for many years, uh, really exacerbated by the the pandemic and um, and brought to to the awareness over the last few years as we reduce stigma and start to talk a little bit more about mental health needs. Are you seeing more uh, children and I guess parents seeking these kinds of services than, than maybe, you know, 10, 20 years ago? Yeah, I, I think, I think that uh, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to quantify. Um, but I think, uh, you know, some, some statistics and some background is, is really helpful here. Um, this has been a problem that's been going on for many years. Um, you know, the magnitude of this problem is, is, is really astounding. Uh, one in six youth in the United States, age six to 17, experience a mental health disorder each year. Uh, suicide remains the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34 in the United States. And, uh, you know, that's just worsened during the pandemic. Um, uh, as a bit of uh, background, uh, 2016 to 2020, the number of children three to 17 diagnosed with anxiety grew by 29% and those with depression by 27%. So that was happening prior to uh, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then during the pandemic, um, uh, specifically March of 2020 to October of 2020, 
uh, mental health related ED visits increased 24% for children age 5 to 11 and 31% for ages 12 to 17 compared with 2019 ED visits. Um, you know, it's just a staggering number. And, uh, and, and clearly, uh, you know, people are seeking out care. Um, these ED statistics are striking for a couple of reasons. One, because uh, there is this large surge in, in children and adolescents seeking care, um, but that they're doing so at the ED shows that our, our, uh, our, our national structure for serving these individuals in this way is, is, is uh, not sufficient. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I mean, I'm guessing during the pandemic, you just had that, you know, everybody was so isolated. So, you know, uh, social contact was cut down in a huge way. So I'm sure that didn't uh, help matters for folks who were already probably hurting. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, either the lockdowns, the school closures, the social isolation of, of, of kids during uh, developmentally critical periods of time in, in their development, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's affected everyone, but uh, it's affected children and adolescents in a, in a way that can have profound developmental impact. Um, and was it, and you know, you mentioned it sort of, this was already happening before the pandemic. Is it a matter of there just not being enough uh, psychologists available, professionals to help folks or, or just has the need for these kinds of services surpassed just the number of, you know, folks in the field? Yeah, I, th I think there are a number of factors, um, I, but, I, but I think that your, your, uh, your question about the number of providers in, in this space is, is um, I, I think that's, that's critical to, to a lot of the problems that we're having. Uh, there, there's just this absolute shortage of providers, um, and, and that, that includes therapists like psychologists and social workers, or, uh, licensed, uh, licensed counselors, um, and child and adolescent psychiatrists who are subspecialists of, of psychiatry. Um, you know, if you if you look across the nation, 60% of counties in the United States don't have a single practicing psychiatrist within their borders, and that shortage is even more pronounced for uh, fellowship-trained subspecialists in child and adolescent psychiatry, uh, where we see a 70% 70, 70 of the counties um, which are, are, are unaccounted for. Um, and likewise for therapists, only 4,000 out of the more than 100,000 U.S. clinical psychologists are trained to treat children and adolescents. It's, it's a striking a striking problem. Um, on top of that, we have a relative misdistribution of these providers. Uh, primarily, um, we see uh, urban areas being more resourced than rural areas, so that, that shortage can be even more pronounced in rural areas. Why is there such a shortage of, uh, of these professionals? Is it just folks are going into different fields, or is it just it's, you know, is it difficult for, you know, those are in the field to to deal with like how what's sort of the uh, the reasoning behind the shortage? Well, I, I think uh, education and training um, uh, is long and arduous, uh, whether it's for uh, for therapy or for medicine and mm. and psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry. Um, traditionally, the reimbursement has been quite low, so this is a, a you know a, a mission of love. Uh, for for many individuals and um, and and uh, you know I think I, I think the sad truth is that stigma doesn't just affect people in the population it it affects uh, physicians it affects people uh, who are choosing um, their their course of of study in college and grad school 
And, uh, and traditionally, um, this has been a very stigmatized uh, part of the population and uh, as a stigmatized set of disorders to, to, uh, to have and even to treat. Uh, so a number of factors here, but um, for, for child and adolescent psychiatrists in particular, there is a, there is a cohort of, of child and adolescent psychiatrists um, that are um, uh, contributing to an aging out of the population. And we, we are going to be faced with an even greater shortage over the next decade. Um, and how can technology like telehealth and remote patient monitoring help sort of bridge the gap? Yeah, and I'm very excited about this, and so I think I, I think this is one of the things that gives me the most hope is that we can we can address the shortage. We 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 don't train providers, and so you know if there's one thing that that um, you know I'd, I'd I'd love to to message today, it's it's that this is a, a wonderful field, very rewarding, and so needed. Um, so if anyone is considering um, uh, focusing on that area of, of work, I, I would highly encourage it. Um, so technology can't create providers, but mm. we can help uh, ameliorate some of the, the misdistribution that happens. Um, you, you know, it can directly impact this through direct treatment of patients with behavioral health needs. That spans the range of uh, symptom acuity and treatment needs. Uh, it can provide professional to professional supports like formal or informal consultation or clinical supervision, or even peer education. Um, it, it can also provide self-guided programs that address a broad range of symptom severity and aid in early detection, uh, which is you know, so important to making sure that, that these illnesses get caught early and treated early before they become uh, severe enough to, um, to become emergencies. Um, I guess one, one sort of background statistic on that that's really, uh, I think, important to mention is that 50% um, of all lifetime mental illness begins by age 14 and 75% by age 24. And so we're talking about a very, very critical age and a critical time period um, during which these disorders can be addressed early and the, the curve can be, can be bent on, on the severity of illness. Um, unfortunately, that's just not happening now the average delay between onset of mental illness symptoms and treatment is 11 years currently. Oh, wow. Uh, even, yeah. are you seeing sort of, I know you mentioned sort of the stigma that's sort of involved with, you know, mental health issues. Uh, are, are people, is that lessening at all? Or are people kind of, you know, becoming more open to seeking treatment? You know, I think it is. And I think, I think that um, the last few decades have, have, uh, have been really helpful in this regard. I think we we're talking about it's in the, the social consciousness and the social discourse. Um, you sort of more more nationally, um, it, it's something that we've integrated better into other fields of medicine like primary care, pediatrics. Although I think we have a long way to go. Um, but uh, but so you know in in um, in school-based interventions and, and screening uh, efforts, I think we've we've gone a long way to um, to identifying and, and sort of uh, accepting just how how pervasive some of these disorders are, um, how early you can detect and, and uh, address them, and and how much they they really are treatable conditions. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, in any public health intervention is, is uh, 
it, it's one of those paradoxical things that looks like a bad thing initially, but ends up when on on deeper look to be to be a good thing is when you start doing a surveillance program or detection, you often see an uptick in the number of cases. And I think we might actually be in part of that now that we're doing better detection and screening. So mm -hmm. we're seeing people come to uh, attention of medical professionals much more than we might have two or three decades ago. So uh, how would a, a healthcare organization kind of use or ideally use telehealth and RPM you know, as part of their, uh, you know, services for mental health, um, you know, what's sort of the ideal way to kind of weave that in with sort of in-person, um, you know, visits? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think there's, there's uh, probably no single best way. I think a lot of it probably depends on um, the relative resources that are available in that area and to that, that, um, that system. Um, but I think, you know, there's some fundamental uh, targets here. Um, y you know, you'd want to seek out ways to redistribute the mental health resources virtually to reach those in, in rural areas and, um, and, and those with um, uh, family and, and social um, barriers to in-person visits, um, really using telehealth as a, uh, an important tool in the tool belt to provide a longitudinal care. Uh, another way is to encourage integration with general pediatrics or primary care. Uh, it's, it's, it's a crucial part of assisting with uh, detection and appropriate specialty referral, uh, whether the referral is virtual or in-person. Um, a note on that, unfortunately, uh, only 50% of patients referred for specialty care and behavioral health actually have the appointment. So a referral is often not enough to, to really ensure ongoing engagement and, and follow-up. So uh, programs like the collaborative care model uh, that was developed by the University of Washington is a specific type of integrated care that has great literature, literature support. Um, there are many other ways that integration can occur. Um, another way would be to uh, make it as easy as possible to connect children and adolescents uh, as well as teens to telebehavioral health services. And then uh, I guess finally, partnerships with schools can be another really helpful approach to expanding access. I was going to ask about that, uh, you know, in terms of schools, um, how can, you know, sort of telehealth slash RPM be utilized in a school setting, you know, to kind of help? Because I know, you know, there's obviously a big shortage of, uh, you know, or, or a huge workload and a big and a shortage of staff uh, for those school counselors and psychologists. So how, how can sort of telehealth sort of help out schools to provide those services? Well, I think fundamentally um, uh, remote um, uh, virtual visits and, and, and telemedicine in general and, and these kinds of supports can, can help um, schools by bringing the experts into the place where, um, where children are. Uh, you know, a, a, child's, uh, a, a child's waking hours are primarily spent in, in school. So, so bringing those two um, important parts of the equation together can be really important. Likewise, uh, virtual visits can allow for parents to join uh, into, in, into visits as well. And, and uh, in a family, particularly one with two working parents, um, having that family participation in a, you know, a, a, a quick um, virtual visit would, would allow parents who otherwise couldn't 
uh, miss work to to participate. Um, but I think it's probably different from from school to school what the resources are and what the needs are. Um, I can give an example uh, of uh, uh, one uh, uh, AMWIL solution. Uh, Children's Health in, in Dallas offers both school-based and at-home telebehavioral health services. Uh, families can access a behavioral health provider by scheduling an appointment uh, through the Children's Health app. And that program's demonstrated strong clinical improvements in, the, in those among the, the uh, students in the Dallas area. Um, children and teens uh, in that program experienced a 32% improvement in their clinical mm -hmm. goals based on self-ratings before and uh, th that were conducted before and during treatment. So, so that that's one way. Um, but again, I think there's no one-size-fits-all solution here. Um, and and I imagine you know one byproduct of the pandemic has been an increased use of telehealth. Has that sort of helped? you know, spread these services around, uh, you know, in a more rapid fashion than you were probably expecting? Oh, absolutely. You know, before the pandemic, I remember giving a talk in, uh, I guess it was fall of 2019, uh, where I used a, a very commonly sort of stated quote that, that you know, that, that, that says telemedicine has been around the corner for decades. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was true at the time. It was, it was something that everybody thought would make sense. And actually there was even a, a Jetsons episode that had a virtual visit in it, you know, from, from, uh, from uh, the old cartoon days. So, uh, so this has been in, in the public awareness for a long time, but, you know, it, it, it unfortunately took COVID to really accelerate that uh, adoption. And when we think about adoption, we, we, we don't just think about adoption by patients, um, but also by health systems, uh, you know, health uh, um, payers and, uh, and, and providers themselves. Um, really having providers have the experience um, and, and, and frequently say, I, I was nervous. I didn't think that I would have the same rapport with my patient, but it was remarkable just how much like an in-person visit it was um, is I think very telling. And I want to say it's easier, but it's probably, you know, where you don't have to necessarily, you know, in a uh, mental health visit have physical contact. It's probably, you know, doing it, uh, you know, via screen uh, is probably at least a little more uh, like a real visit than say like, a, you know, if you were going to your doctor for your annual checkup. Absolutely. I, I think, I think that there, you know, when we, when we think about what, what telemedicine is appropriate for um, uh, versus in-person treatment, we're always comparing the standard of care uh, to the in-person visit. And so you're absolutely right that for encounters where um, a, uh, physical manipulation part of the physical exam is is not needed, um, then you, then then you you can provide in some cases an even better assessment uh, because you're you're you have such visual clarity of the face and uh, and some of the mannerisms and uh, and gestures at times um, you don't you don't see uh, the patient walking uh, so if that's a part of the assessment then um, then other arrangements have to be made although. Um, uh, gait assessment certainly can be done through telemedicine, just not sitting down at a at a desk face to face. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned rural health and sort of the the challenges that lie there, and sort of getting you know these services out to folks in rural areas. 
um, you know, what still needs to be done to kind of improve, uh, I guess, you know, lack of technology uh, in certain places or lack of even broadband internet uh, and, and just sort of, you know, uh, getting the word out about, you know, you know, that you can do these, these visits online, you know, what, what still needs to be done for, to help those rural areas? Yeah, I, I, I think that you, you mentioned a number of really important uh, parts of the equation. Um, you, you know, broadband is something we often take for granted, um, uh, but there are, you know, huge sections of the country that don't have broadband that um, uh, would be um, that meet the minimum standards for for a, a, a virtual visit, um, and and any any sort of uh, continued effort to expand that is really really important. Um, you know, I think I think we still we still have a number of of hurdles um, that are sort of more general hurdles, and not necessarily specific to to, to, to rural care. Um, but uh, you know, we talked about um, about the uh, sustainable or about the education rate and the, the rate of providers going into the field. We, we really need a nationwide effort to, to provide sustainable funding for education and, and training to bolster the workforce. We need an increased reimbursement for um, behavioral health integration um, and really just uh, a, a, an increased focus on decreasing coverage barriers, third-party coverage barriers to behavioral health treatment like limiting utilization management review and enforcing laws on behavioral health treatment parity. Um, you know, more specifically in rural areas, um, thinking uh, about uh, bolstering local resources that are ancillary mm -hmm. supports uh, can be really helpful. Um, uh, Maine, for example, has an, a phenomenal care management uh, system um, uh, that, that allows for uh, uh, case management from from the state uh, when a child is in um, behavioral health treatment um, that can really help with uh, the longitudinal perspective on the child and help coordinate resources and in a resource uh, rich environment uh, may feel less imperative but in an in an area where um, where therapists and psychiatrists are at a premium and, and very difficult to schedule with at times, uh, that can be extremely helpful for the for the long view. And, and speaking of the long view, what are your hopes for telehealth and you know in this population over the next five to ten years? Well, I, I'm really excited about uh, about the the way that telemedicine has so quickly been. Um, uh, adopted as, as a, a, an important tool in the medical armamentarium. Uh, we, you know, we, I think we're, we still have a lot of way to go as, as a nation in, um, in, in thinking about telemedicine as being uh, part of hybrid care, part of um, uh, the, the spectrum of care that, that's provided for, for every patient as part of their, their healthcare journey. Um, but, I, but I think we're getting there. Um, I do think that there there are a lot of opportunities to to use technology to help integrate behavioral health uh, with primary care better um, to provide um, uh, tools like uh, like Emil Silver, Silver Cloud, which uh, uh, is a uh, evidence based program uh, backed by 18 years of research and 50 over 50 peer reviewed published research papers. Um, on uh, to really 
provide digitally based CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy and other uh, therapy supports to, to patients directly, uh, which, which allows them to sort of participate meaningfully in their, their treatment early and, and retain some, um, um, uh, some ability to sort of guide that treatment early on um, and, and, and really shows incredible benefits. Uh, um, 80% of the, the users experience improvement in their symptom scores and 65% uh, clinically significant uh, on the GAD7 and PHQ9, uh, which are measures of anxiety and depression. And uh, that has sustainable results that uh, just shows a 50% further decrease at 12 months. So these kinds of interventions are, are actually not just ways of addressing symptoms as they occur and um, and treating them in the moment, but building skills for the future. Um, so I think these ongoing uh, uh, sorts of programs um, can provide the, um, the building blocks of an even bigger, um, you know, explosion in digital care and, and, and healthcare uh, that spans bricks and mortar and, and technology-based treatment. Excellent. Well, Dr. Sasan, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. That wraps up episode 58 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the show and listen on-demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.